Warning, this episode contains some strong language. Also a content warning that there is a brief mention of parental death around the 35 minute mark. That only lasts for about one minute, so if that's something that is uh, triggering for you, just be aware of that and you can skip to 36 minutes. Just go from 35 straight to 36, you'll be good. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniecks. I'm pleased to introduce today our guest, Annalie Flowerhorn. Annalie is an excellent person, full of snark and glee, uh, who you should absolutely be following on the interwebs, as I have for many a year. Annalie, welcome to the show! Thanks! I'm really excited to be here. I am excited to have you here. Annalie, you're going to be reading from Diamonds in the Sky, is that correct? Indeed. And what are the things we need to know for this to make sense? Okay, so I'm actually reading from the very beginning, so there's not a whole lot that you need to know for it to make sense. This is the opening of a unfinished and trunked YA science fiction novel about Esperanto-speaking Quakers in space. Whee! Right. Um... Hillary, do you speak Esperanto? I don't. Okay. I speak high school Spanish slash Duolingo Spanish and do a lot of programmy things and memorize random phrases in languages, but cool. I do not speak Esperanto. I was gonna I do speak Quaker. I, well, I was going to drop a Esperanto translation of a certain Quaker song on you and make you sing it with me, because um, I'm not singing <laughs> it by myself. Um, but if you don't speak Esperanto, that might be slightly challenging. Uh, we will... Let's hold on that for, like, next season sometime, and I will totally do that. All right. Cool. So this is the very, very opening of the novel. Do I need to include any other details about it before I before I jump in? I think. Probably not. Probably not. Okay, so this is the very beginning of Diamonds in the Sky, which is not a very original title, but I also didn't finish the book, so the title is a work and no longer in progress. <laughs> anyway, and here we go. Argenta means silver, but I didn't see much silver when I was plummeting towards the surface at a million clicks a second. It went from looking <laughs> like a bright blue disc outside the window to looking a whole lot like the inside of a heat shield. Our shuttle, the Hope, was shaking so badly that I was sure it was going to fall apart. When the good people of Gaia hired my ancestors for this trip, I wonder if they ever pictured it ending in a fireball burning up Argenta's southern sky. The tablet in my lap flashed a text message from Beck down on the surface. I can see your shuttle now! I'm flipping my spin! Same, I wrote back, except the shuttle thing because you don't have one. I wanted to say something more clever, historic moment that it was, but my cousin's tablet was five generations old and impossible to type on, even without all the turbulence. A minute later, Beck was back on my screen. Lexi wants to see your last message. Show her? I laughed. Even in the middle of the landing that was going to reunite the last isolated colony with the rest of the human race, Lexi Vale couldn't stop being a reporter. I could imagine her, down on the surface, with her camera crew. We're just minutes away now from the greatest landing since Armstrong reached Earth's moon, and the excitement in the air is palpable. With me here today <laughs> is Civil Space Patrol cadet Rebecca Gutierrez, a remarkable young lady from Ciudad Allende. When Rebecca was six years old, her mother was stationed on the orbital observatory, where Beck sent the approaching Anesidora a message. Two weeks later, in the farthest reaches of our solar system, six-year-old Amica responded. They've been in contact for a decade now, and in just a few minutes, these two best friends will be meeting for the very first time. Are you excited, Rebecca? Wheels down mm -hmm. in ten, the co-pilot called. Nine, 
eight. I grew up on a giant wheel that spins to make fake gravity, so I'm used to my weight changing when I move, but the g-force from the shuttle was different, a pressure on my chest that shoved me into my seat. I held on to my armrest for all I was worth and tried to remind myself that our pilots were the best Argenta had to offer. There was a huge bump that jerked my safety belt taut. The roar of the engines calmed and the shuttle stopped shuddering as it rolled down the runway. I looked across at my mom, who smiled at me. We're... Word from the Hope, too, the co-pilot cut in. My mother and the other members of the diplomatic committee froze. The co-pilot was touching the receiver in his ear, listening. We all held our breath and waited. My cousin Ada was aboard the Hope, too, along with four other technicians. It was towing the faster-than-light beacon that Gaia and the other human colonies had sent us all this way to deliver. We had been moving towards this for generations, training for it for years. Thirty days before, we'd gotten our last shots for every disease there was, and since then, life had been one endless dash towards this moment. The shuttle came to a stop. None of us moved except the pilot. She was running through her closing responsibilities like they were clockwork routine, leaning over occasionally to the co-pilot's dashboard to check a readout or flip a switch so that he could finish taking the message. The co-pilot turned around in his chair. The beacon is in position, he said with a grin. Technicians have commenced startup procedures. A cheer went up outside the shuttle, a big roaring whoop that seemed to come from all around us. They must have gotten the same news. We cheered too, because we had landed, and the Hope 2 had gotten the faster-than-light beacon into orbit, and because more people than we could even imagine, all over the face of Argenta, were cheering. And they were cheering for us. I still remember my mother's fierce embrace, and everyone around us smiling, and the pilot kept kissing Alicia, the ship doctor, her long gray fingers wrapped around the back of Alicia's shapely, speckled head. My screen flashed again, a message to Beck and me from Lexi. Whole planet is watching this, ladies. Remember what we talked about, please? Representing your people? Watch your language. (laughs) That last was directed at me. On the Anesidora, the Spanish word carajo is practically punctuation. It's not so much a sea bomb as a sea party cracker, and we pop it like it's midnight on launch day. On Argenta, not so much. The first time I was on Lexi's show about a year before, I hadn't learned yet that it was a seriously bad word on Argenta. Much bleepification followed. (laughs) Lexi says don't cuss, I told my mom. My mother kissed my forehead and pulled back, nodding towards the door. Go on out and say hello to your friend, Aminho. I walked over to the hatch and hauled on the handle. The sound of the cheering crowd outside was like a shockwave. It seemed to throw the heavy door open in my arms. I took a step back at the sound of it. Then I saw the sky. There was a crowd, of course, pushing forward against chain-link barricades towards us and cameras flashing all over the field, a thousand photographs of me standing there in the hatchway, slack-jawed and staring at that distant Mm -hmm. horizon. I'd spent my whole life under a ceiling made of metal and lights. The line of Argenta's blue sky meeting the gray-green earth was too big for my head to hold. Looking straight at it made it dance in my vision and blur. Amica, Beck called. In person, her voice sounded nothing like it did streaming, but even back then I could recognize it anywhere. I pulled my gaze away from the horizon to look for her, but my eyes weren't focusing right. The distance made me dizzy. And there were so many people. Their skin all gray-blue from a lifetime of silver and their food and water. They were pressed against the landing field's chain-link barricades and stretched back as far as the eye could see. Farther than my eyes had ever seen before. Back, wait, someone yelled. I looked towards the sound. There were figures running through the empty space between the barricades and me. I blinked, tried to force my eyes to focus. It was Beck. Ten paces behind her was Lexi with her camera crew in tow. 
I started towards them, but the slope of the gangway and the unfamiliar gravity tripped me, and the guardrail seemed to dodge when I reached for it. Beck yelled something I couldn't make out, and when I looked up, I caught sight of that endless sky again. It took me a second to realize that I was falling, and a second longer for the giant mob of spectators to get sight of it on their jumbo screens and stop shouting. My left shoulder hit the ground first, and when I rolled again, Beck was standing over me, panting. Debajo, I said. Honest. It means under. The lip readers can't prove a thing. (laughs) Beck offered me both hands. Are you all right? My mom's footsteps sounded on the gangway behind me, and I realized I just messed up whatever one small step thing she had planned. Lexi stepped up behind Beck, cameras rolling. Your sky's so big, I said, as Beck hauled me to my feet. Beck smiled at me. You just made it bigger, she said. Amica, you just made it so much bigger. Then the cheering started again. Hmm. And that is the opening of the book. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Um, so I remember before the show when we were talking about uh, what we were going to have on here, that you mentioned this is from the uh, same universe as... Seven, oh. yeah, seven things Cadet Blanchard learned about the Trade Summit incident, which was the first story that I ever sold. Um, yes, to so, FNSF. Yes, to FNSF. Um, so I actually thought when I was looking at it and talking to you, I thought that this was a successor that I wrote this afterwards, but I went back and was looking through my files and no, actually I had written this before. So what happened was the story in FNSF, if you read it, does not have the same world building as this story. Um, Mm -hmm. and the reason was that I wrote, uh, the seven things story, um, for Mary Robinette Cole's, um, short story writing class. And I forget. Highly recommend. Yes. It was so good. Um, and in fact, I don't think that I had ever really successfully written a short story before that. Like, I'm sure I had done some stuff in class, but in terms of like sitting down and trying to write a, sh- a professional short story, um, I couldn't get my brain around it until I took that class. Um, that class is hugely helpful. We are not sponsored by Mary Robinette or her class. We're just saying it's great. Yeah. However, I realized that with the word count restrictions that I had, I had to not fuck around with world building. Um, yeah. So when I did the short story version, uh, the the world building in it will be imminently recognizable to anybody that's watched a science fiction television show in the last however long it's been since Star Trek, the original series launched. So, so the world building is not the same, but I really did. I just took the same characters and basically renamed them and stuck them in simpler world building and then told a story about uh, stink bombs getting set off on a spaceship and this turning into a whodunit. Yes. I was going to say, and then you told a fart joke. Uh, yeah, it was an 11-page fart joke. That's what that story is. Um, yeah. uh, it's one of my favorite... Well, I say it's one of my favorite stories that I've ever sold. I haven't actually sold that many. Um, it is uh, It is my proof to myself that I'm actually funny, because that story is hilarious. It is hilarious. I uh, just reread it again in preparation for this, and am bad at remembering titles, which is why I stumbled there. But it is... I think it is especially hilarious to tech people, of which we are both. Yes. Yeah. Because there are some good git jokes in there, and I remember right after that story came out that you said on Twitter, you know, this is really a dystopia because we're however many years in the future, but we're still using git for source control management. (laughs) Yeah. Git. 
Git is, I mean, it's the best, it's the worst version control system there is, except for all the others, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like they're, they, they implemented an API, but then forgot to actually implement the rest. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's a pain in the ass to use. And people will tell you, oh, it's very simple. It's just that it requires the command line. I am very comfortable with the command line. My problem is that the, the, the actual commands make no sense. Like checkout yes. sometimes means, check out a copy of a file and it sometimes means create an entirely new branch for those of you that are not techies these are entirely separate functions and it determines yeah. which you want based on context which isn't good computers shouldn't determine things based on context they're very stupid computers are not good at context they're very explicitly bad at context um yes. so this means that you're trying to check out a file and you put a typo in the file name and instead of being like hey did you mean this file it's like hey i created this new branch with this weird name for you and you're like <laughs> before we branch wildly off into just complaining about technology Indeed. for the next hour i will say that while computers are generally very bad at context the command the fuck <laughs> is very good at context and the fact that i can just type into my terminal fuck after i've mistyped a command and it generally knows what i was going for is very good i need to install that i you told me about it on twitter and i was just like i need that in my life um but i haven't yeah. i haven't done that i do i do have a uh, pseudo bang bang um i forget what i had that alias to for a while i had it it alias to something like because fuck you um or something <laughs> like that um anyway we're we're talking tech and this is not going to be understandable to anybody that does not have to deal with the horrors of git uh those few those happy few whose ignorance whose <laughs> ignorance is indeed bliss um, yes so uh right before we started uh we were talking about sort of the sequence of the show mm -hmm. and one of the things that i like to ask is Why'd you trunk this thing? Okay, so this is actually kind of a complicated... It wasn't just because, like, oh, because it sucked, or, oh, because, like, the, the, the like, pat answer is, oh, because writing is hard and I couldn't figure out the middle, um, which is true, but only to a point. Um, right. There were multiple contributing factors. One is, I don't think this is a YA novel. I started writing it as a YA novel when I was looking at my file, uh, one of my original Catch. files, and the, hello, kitty! There's a kitty! Hi! Sorry, everybody. There's there's a kitty, and that means we have to uh, we have to stop and greet the kitty. Um, yes. Anyway, back on topic. Um, when I when I was looking at the dates on these files, and it, I started writing this thing in college, and at the time I was both reading and writing a lot of YA, and was thinking of myself as a YA writer, um, and so I was writing this story as a YA, and mm -hmm. looking back on it, I actually think that caused me a lot of problems and that if I were to acknowledge that these characters actually need to be a little older than that um, it would be it would it would solve the thematic and pro plot problems that I was running into um, which is that this is not really a story about somebody taking their first step into a big adult world um, mm -hmm. it's it isn't it is kind of a coming of age story but it's not not in the sense that you think of as YA stories being coming of age stories. So as I was as I was telling Hillary before, this is a story about Esperanto speaking Quakers in space. And some of you are going to be like, what? Molly Glass already wrote about Esperanto speaking Quakers <laughs> in space. And you are correct. And also you're very well read. Uh, the Dazzle of Day is a 
freaking amazing novel and everyone should read it. Um, Saga Press actually just put out new editions of all of Molly Glass's <gasps> work this year, so you can get an imprint copy with a super pretty cover, and you should do that. It's behind me somewhere. I was going to show it off to Hillary, even though the rest of you can't see it. Um, but anyway, you should all read it. It's a super good book. But Molly- good on Saga Press for putting out a new version. Yeah, it, it's it's. I'm so glad that it's back in print. I have more copies of that book than I care to admit, and Molly Glass signed <laughs> one of them, and I'm really happy about that, and she was actually super nice and i got to meet her and like they say don't meet your heroes but meeting her was actually really cool anyway what was i saying oh right so the dazzle of day is about life on the esperanto speaking quaker spaceship uh it's a generation ship and it's about the course of this generation ship over its many generations um this story um which yes i wrote after reading the dazzle of day um but the reason that i got the dazzle of day in the first place is because somebody was like somebody wrote about esperanto speaking quakers in space this is a book just for you um because you know, in college, when I first started writing this, I was an Esperanto-speaking Quaker who was obsessed with space. Um, two of those things are still true. Um, I am still Quaker and still obsessed with space. Uh, my Esperanto yes. is uh, not so good anymore. But, you know, I'm on Duolingo. I'm, I'm building it back up. But um, this is a story about what happens when that that Quaker community comes into contact with a much wider galaxy. And it was written at a time that I was grappling with and struggling with both being at a Quaker college and then afterwards, the way that that Quaker process and Quaker traditions get sort of warped and distorted uh, by other, both activist communities, by businesses, by areas of the tech industry. Um, And they'll be Mm -hmm. like, well, we learned this from the Quakers and we're doing this thing. And it's like, you are bastardizing Quaker process and bastardizing Quaker traditions and then watching those bastardizations bleed back into Quakerism and affect the way that we conducted ourselves and conducted our own business, um, which is something that I have a lot of feelings about and could probably also talk about for an hour. But I was... Should we have a spinoff podcast where we just yell about Quakerism? Yes. I think that sounds like a great idea. Um, Excellent. But basically... Uh, this is, in a sense, this, that this story is a story about this girl coming into contact with this non-Quaker world uh, that is fascinated by this Quaker ship and sees it, though, as a as a thing outside of time. That faster than light mm. beacon that gets referenced. This is a generation ship, and this is a world where faster than light, you can travel faster than light, but you need a beacon at your destination. And so you have to go the long way first. And so this is a ship that's gone the long way and has been a generation ship ever since it left Earth. It never settled on a planet. But this is the last planet that needs a faster than light beacon. And so as far as the rest of the galaxy is concerned, this ship has outlived its usefulness. Uh, Amica's people are no longer useful to anyone but themselves. Um, Mm. And so this is a transition point for them. And the rest of the galaxy is treating them sort of like, oh, you are like quaint relics of the past. Um, and not, you know, a real and living culture. Huh. That sounds like uh, Quakers? How people treat Quakers? Right. It does sound like people treat Quakers. But I realized as I was writing it that non-Quakers were not going to read it that way. They were going to read an allegory about American Indians, uh, which is not my lane. Um, yeah. So that was the first problem that I ran into is that I didn't want to be writing a story that was going to get interpreted as me stepping 
way the hell outside my lane. Um, because as annoying as it is when people do this to us, Quakers by and large, obviously there are Quakers of color, but in the United States, Quakerism as an institution massively benefits from and perpetuates white privilege. Um, so yep. the the cultural appropriation that we deal with is nothing compared to the cultural appropriation that people of color deal with. And so I didn't want to be writing a story that was essentially about cultural appropriation without being very thoughtful about that. Um, and at the time, I didn't have the tools to do that. I don't know that I do now. But, you know, I might I might actually, as I pull this out, give it another try. The other reason that I trunked it was that I took it to a workshop where I don't want to be like, nobody at the workshop understood my genius because like <laughs> no one wants to be that guy. But my teachers at that particular workshop, I had two teachers, both of whom were, you know, very well-respected people who are super nice. I'm not saying they're horrible people. Um, they mm -hmm. didn't get what I was trying to do with this story, probably because I didn't really get what I was trying to do with the story and I didn't articulate it very well. But because of the, because of that experience, it was like, oh, this story is just never going to work and I should trunk it and move on to something different, which I did. And I am working on a different novel right now, um, which is definitely not a YA, but I trunked this. If you go into my, uh, my file system um, where I keep, I have a folder in, in Dropbox called uh, Annalise Writing. And under in progress long, there is a folder called Diamonds in the Sky. And then in brackets, do not touch. <laughs> um, because, you know, I couldn't keep my paws off it. Um, I kept going back and trying to, and I was just going in circles. Um, so I trunked it basically because I was going in circles and mm -hmm. I I didn't really have a clear like it had it had to do with me processing my feelings about being a Quaker in in spaces, nonprofit activist spaces that were misappropriating Quakerism in ways that were actually harmful to Quakerism as opposed to just like taking stuff from Quakerism and applying it to their own context like fine do that but the way that it was happening was was actually harming because it would it was bleeding back over into people coming into quaker spaces and being like well this is how quaker process works and it's like no that's some shit you learned from occupy wall street which is fine right. but it's not quaker yeah yeah these are having some big feelings right, right. here about a lot of this right but i didn't i didn't really i hadn't I was having a lot of feelings about that that I was processing, but I didn't articulate that thesis to myself. And so it was just kind of barfed all over the page and not, I was struggling to get a cohesive narrative out of it. Right. And I'm looking at it now. Um, I put a joke from this, from this manuscript on Twitter a few weeks ago because I was rereading what I had. And that joke is, I'm sorry, it's just really funny. Um, it's a really good joke. Yeah, thank you. It's a good joke, Bront. It's a good joke, Bront. Um, I don't know if your podcast readers want to hear it, um, but... Um, podcast, I want to hear it again. Podcast readers? I don't know what that was. I call them readers all the time. Okay, I'm going to search for Newton, because I'm pretty sure that's the <laughs> only place it appears. Okay, um, so this is the joke. Um, sorry, I'm on a tangent again. Um, the the details the of this joke... This is one giant tangent. ...is there's a bunch of space cadets um, that are getting a tour of a new ship, and they're on their sort of like orientation tour, and they are visit visiting uh, the equivalent of the bridge. Um, and they're all lined up hearing about bridge functions. And then they get to ask questions, and one of them says, So can we try the helm? Andrews asked. No, you may not, the lieutenant said. This isn't a yacht, kids. What's Newton's first law, Andrews? Uh, an object in motion tends to stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force, sir? Close. 
Close, San Miguel said. Jaya, what's Newton's first law? Jaya straightened up. Newton's first law is don't touch the helm controls, sir. Domino Squad leading the way, San Miguel said. <laughs> Which, those of you that have watched or played Mass Effect 2, uh, there's a there's a joke in Mass Effect 2 about how Sir Isaac Newton is the deadliest son of a bitch in space. Um, and it has to do with, uh, with Newton's first law that because unless acted upon by an outside force means that when you do something in space, there are very few outside forces to act upon it. And so things will just keep happening. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, when I, when I was rereading this, I was like, I didn't just steal the Mass Effect 2 joke without credit, did I? But then I was like, oh no, this is a reference to the Mass Effect 2 joke, but then it actually has its own punchline. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, where was I, uh, before I got to that joke? Oh yeah, I was reading back through it and I was reading the material I have, and I think I probably could put this back in the list as something to something, put this back in my hopper as a thing to work on. It just, at the time, it wasn't working, and I was spinning my wheels and getting really frustrated. And there's this sort of eternal balance, right, of, like, how long do you beat your head against a project before you give up and move on to something else? Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, people will tell you, oh, no, don't give up, don't be a quitter, like, blah, blah, blah. But at some point, you know, those who never win and never quit are just misusing their time. Um, Right. So... Something that Mary Robinette Kowal said to me in a conversation we were having at one point is, and I think I've mentioned it on this show before, but that that old adage of finish everything you start mm-hmm. is fine when you're a new writer who doesn't like doesn't have the practice of finishing mm-hmm. drilled into them yet, but there comes a point where absolutely don't finish everything you start because you can identify you know, sooner and sooner, like, this isn't working for this reason, and either this isn't working for this reason, I'm going to, you know, pivot and figure out how to finish it, or this isn't working for this reason, I don't have the time, the spell slots, whatever, to finish it, let's move on to the next thing, which is better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's where I got caught in this thing, is that I was just spinning my wheels. And rereading it, it's possible that at some future point I will pull it back out of the trunk with some pretty big alterations. I think uh, making the characters 20 instead of 16 will make a lot of things easier, um, mm-hmm. which has to do not with... Like, I have them flying sh- flying spaceships and stuff, and... Uh, oh, kitty. Um, <laughs> kitty sighting. I have them flying spaceships and stuff, which that is drawn. You know, I have uh, Bat Gutierrez is in the Civil Space Patrol, which is a joke off the Civil Air Patrol, which is an actual organization in the United States where teenagers learn to fly planes and assist in search and rescue efforts, um, which mm-hmm. is basically the Civil Space Patrol. There's an asteroid field near Argenta, Beck's planet, um, and they do asteroid field mining and they end up having to do a lot of search and rescue in the asteroid field. And that's what the civil space patrol does. And, uh, this is a story about, you know, Beck and, and Amica meet up and then they're opening Argenta to the rest of the galaxy. And they drop Argenta in the middle of this longstanding galactic conflict and have to figure out what to do next. Um, mm-hmm. but the age that they are, it's not the like, oh, nobody would believe a 16 year old can fly a spaceship. I mean, fuck off. Spaceships don't yeah. <laughs> work. And like the spaceships of this kind don't work. And there's no reason that they would be manually piloted and not remotely piloted anyway. It's all science fiction. Um, but the emotional arcs of these characters don't really read like teenage emotional arcs. Cause it's, you know, 
they they are they are character like especially Amika has an arc of like learning to balance because you know she spent her whole life on this ship and there's actually not a lot of kids her age on the ship because uh, magnetic fields once they got into the solar system it was pretty dangerous for them to have kids for a variety of reasons so uh, there were very few live births during mm-hmm. that period of her life so she doesn't have many people her own age and so her whole connection to socializing with children her own age was socializing with Beck and then with other people via this audio connection and then a video connection to Argenta. So she has a story in there about learning to accept you know herself and her own culture in relation to having always had this this outside connection and feeling like Argenta's more exciting and Argenta's where we're going and once we get there everything will be better for me and then realizing Mm -hmm. that like there's a difference between respect and attention that this whole planet, uh, you know, loves her, but they don't actually necessarily in the rest of the galaxy doesn't actually necessarily respect her and her culture, which also, again, feelings about Quakerism, feelings about a yeah. certain open source project that I was working with that wanted to put me in a leadership position because of my understanding of um, consensus decision making and all this stuff. And then I realized shortly thereafter that this was somebody that was on a tear about a specifically bastardized form of Quaker process and was obsessed with it. Um, And it was, it was just bad. And I realized that I was basically being used because somebody wanted to have an experiment of taking something that was sacred to my people and making it secular. Um, And it, they, that person did not understand anything about Quaker process. And if they had been clear with me up front about what they were trying to do, I would have said, uh, first of all, don't. And second of all, I'm not going to help you. Right. But, you know, I got too far into it before I was like, oh, oh, you're being like weirdly fetishizing of Quaker consensus without actually understanding what the fuck it is or how it works. Like, mm-hmm. we are not actually doing consensus. Quakers are seeking the will of God, which we cannot do for your app. Um, yeah. Weird how that works. Yeah. I mean, Quakers could do that for an app, but not yes. for that app. Anyway. So, yeah, it was all those feelings about about Quakerism and how my Quakerism relates to the rest of the world that were tied up in this story about how this girl from this Quaker ship relates to the rest of the galaxy. And it was just like, I think I have a little bit more emotional distance and can probably put that into a more cohesive thesis. But at the time, fucking A. Yeah. Anyway, that was like a half an hour long answer to a not half an hour long question. It was a good answer, Bront. <laughs> uh, and anyway, time is fake. Like, what's half an hour? Really? I, I'm not on my Adderall this week um, because reasons, <laughs> like medical reasons, I didn't just decide to stop taking it. And uh, yeah, time is fake. Attention is f- fake, as far as I can tell. I also don't understand how anybody including my family and my spouse have put up with me for the last, the 10 years of my adult life in which I was not medicated because God damn, I'm obnoxious and I never shut the fuck up. No. <laughs> These are things are I observe about bean. myself when I am not on my ADD meds. And this is what we call, I'm going to just take a second to plug rejection sensitive dysphoria because every time I mention it, somebody with ADD goes, I didn't know that it existed. And holy shit, you've just blown my mind. This explains everything. So if you are ADD and you ever feel like even a perceived mild rejection is like the end of the goddamn world, like you just cannot. Um, I can give you an example, which is a friend of mine, somebody that I had known for years, uh, responded to one of my texts with a one word answer. And I perceived that as her telling me that, 
like uh. basically to fuck off and that she didn't want to talk to me. I did not speak to her for three months, not because I was mad, but because I assumed that she didn't want to talk to me. And so I didn't initiate any conversations. And because we don't live near each other, we just didn't talk for months because I was convinced that that was a rejection. That is called rejection sensitive dysphoria. It is a symptom of ADD. Look it up. It will improve your quality of life. I'm off my yes. ADD meds. And gosh, have I noticed that the RSD has cranked up to 11. Friends, please take care of your brains. Yes, and if you can't produce your own neurotransmitters, store-bought is fine. Yes, 100%. This message brought to you by my generic Lexapro that I take every morning, and it makes me feel like the world isn't terrible. Drugs, they're good sometimes. Anyway, onward. (laughs) I mean, I think that's really one of the, like, hopeful theses of science fiction. Yes. Is, like... Technology. Actually, it's good. Yes. Better living through chemistry. Yeah. Or automation or robot. I mean, yes. Yeah. Systems administration is just an exercise in better living through automation. Indeed. Indeed. And obviously, you know, there's dystopian science fiction and not all progress is good progress. And some progress specifically sucks for marginalized people. Yes. But, you know, onward. Yes. Uh, so one of the things that uh, sort of came out of all of this talk about why that got rejected that I, I want to focus in on again, because I think, uh, again, for this show, not again for right now, mm-hmm. because I think it's really useful, is this idea of a story can be, can come to you at not the right time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's another... There's another, ex- well, it's not really an example of this specific thing, but um, the the last story, I didn't write anything last year um, at all. Um, so Mood. the last story that I have out was in uh, the October, I think. Let me pull it off my shelf. Um, yeah, my ego shelf is right behind me because I'm that kind of person. Um, on video calls, I just keep my ego shelf really handy. The July 2018 issue of Fireside Quarterly, um, I have a story in there called uh, Pipe Carborough Dorum to Devnall. And that is a story that I had in my head for the longest time and didn't write it because I wasn't a good enough writer to write it. Um, And then Mm -hmm. I finally came to the point where I was like, I'm just going to try it. And I sat it down and I wrote it. And it took me, I think, more than a year because I wrote it and it was okay. And uh, I think I I actually even sent it out and got like, I got a rejection on it. And then I... um, I get to this point probably a lot sooner than most people do because I have a really thin skin where I like am ready to give up on stories and sort of uh, word vomit at writer friends about them. Um, And a mentor of mine read it and gave me some really good advice and I followed her advice and then I sent it out again um, and sold it. Um, and that was like an, oh, like I read that story after I had taken incorporated her feedback and I was like, oh, I actually am a good enough writer to say this thing that I wouldn't have been good enough to say, but then also was scared to say, but now Mm -hmm. it's a story that I can stand behind and be like, I suspect the story is going to piss people off. And I am okay with that because I stand behind it anyway. You know, it's saying something that I think is important and that I need to say. Um, But if I had tried to write it five years earlier, it probably wouldn't have sold. And if it had sold, it would have pissed people off in a way that was me not saying what I needed to say as clearly as I needed to say it. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And that, that I think, is something that's hard to recognize. Yeah, it can be. And not just sometimes, a lot of times Mm -hmm. it's hard to recognize that 
that you're in a place where, you know, I've, I've had stories hanging out in my brain for years that I'm just like, I know I cannot write this right now. Yeah. And one of the... A story that I have not yet sold and may never sell that I finally wrote two years ago where I finally was like, okay, uh, sorry, content warning, parental death. Should have put that earlier. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm finally going to write the story about my mom dying. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I couldn't have written, like I I word vomited about it in a nonfiction class Mm -hmm. in college and made my professor cry. Mm -hmm. I'm really sorry, Catherine. But, you know, I wasn't in a place then where I could write about that and didn't have the distance to write about it necessarily yet. But then to put it down in uh, fiction and to, you know, use the lens of augmented reality Mm -hmm. and, like, neural matrix connection straight to the back of the skull Mm -hmm. as a distancing tactic... Mm -hmm allowed me to do that and sort of exercise yeah. that part a little bit. Yep. And that's really something that I think is important to recognize that that can happen and you can't force it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's one of those things, you know, and this is a sort of like, there's a there's an aspect of like, y- you, you'll never know until you actually try to write it. So you, sometimes it's a question of like, well, just try and see if it works. Um, but mm-hmm. for those really emotional topics where you're saying something deeply personal, it can be hard to tell if you are having the emotional impact that you want to have on the reader, if you are still having that emotional impact on yourself. Um, yeah. So there's an aspect of it of like, you need to, like, it's, I'm not going to say people have never successfully processed something they've dealt with through fiction and had that been a really good story. But what my experience is that I need to, at least to some degree, have already processed it and have some degree of separation from it in order to write about it in a way where I can feel like I have any kind of measure of control and understanding of what effect I'm going to be having on the reader because I am distant enough from it to separate that, that from the effect that it is having on me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you have to have that level of distance and acceptance and whatever to be able to take feedback on it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's definitely true. The feedback thing is huge because, you know, I, I think probably a lot of people have had that experience of being in a uh, writing workshop and, you know, there's that one person that just won't take feedback and it's it can be especially tough when somebody is writing memoir or when somebody mm-hmm. is writing something that they tell you is based on their real events because you'll give them feedback and they'll say, but this is what really happened. Um, yeah. And it's like, okay... I don't know what really happened and it doesn't actually matter because your audience isn't going to know what really happened. I'm just telling you what is and isn't working for me. Um, But if you're writing from this place of like, but this is how it really feels. It's like, okay, that is how it really feels to you. But if, if you are not conveying that, both conveying the feeling that you want to convey and at the intensity that you want to convey it, which is not going to be constant throughout the story. Um, you need some kind of, and I don't want to say like everybody needs to get therapy and have completely dealt with their trauma before they can write a story because of course that's not true. Right. Um, right. plenty of people we're all works in progress and we all have shit and everybody could benefit from therapy. I don't know of a single person on God's green earth that could not. Um, but there's a, there's a level of, 
you need to be able to separate your actual feelings from the feelings of your character and the feelings of the reader um, in order to be able to manage how the feelings of your character are going to evoke feelings in the reader. And if your feelings are super tied up in that, it can be really hard um, to, to sort of manage that interaction. Um, it's kind of like trying to cook when you've got a scented candle in the kitchen, right? It's like mm -hmm. things are not going to taste right um, because you're smelling something that, that the people eating the food can't smell and that's going to affect your sense of taste. That's really cool. I like that. Gonna hold on to that. Kitty. Hello, cat. You really want to be in this podcast today, don't I, you? I'm fine with this. I think kitties yeah. belong on podcasts. You all can't see the, the kitty, but it is very cute. But it's also kind of a blur, but it's a really cute blur. Yeah. Yep, there it goes. She's... Speeds by. <laughs> Blurs by. Get a little uh, little tail action, a little wavy, undulating tail across the screen. Yep. Yeah. Um. All of my thoughts suddenly just went cat. Cat! So yeah, I, I, I really appreciate... Oh, now you are just hitting return endlessly. You have generated like 18 pages. Yay! Good job, cat. Good job, cat. I'm still just seeing the like tail. Yeah. So trolling is happening below the level of the screen, but I'm just seeing the little, yeah. little tail. Um, oh, now the camera's moving, so I get to see the whole cat. Yay! Is a tortie, <laughs> and it is very cute. She's a good cat. She's also a villain. I would say all cats are good cats, but I feel like most cat owners will be like, here's my cat. He's an asshole. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean we don't love them. Yeah, no, definitely love both my cats. They are both jerks in their own unique, special, wonderful ways. Oh, that's the thing. So another thing that came out of talking about this show on Twitter and talking about things that came out of talking about this show on Twitter with you gosh, three weeks ago when I invited you on? Yes. Out of, out of the, mm -hmm. just like, oh, hey, a Twitter thread. I can yeah. both participate in this and also be like, hey, I want your thoughts on my podcast, finally. What were we a talking year about? After. I forget what we I were talking remember. about. I could go look it up. It was a good convo. I'm going to look it up right now. I'm going okay. to go over to Twitter, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to type in the Twitter search. Twitter, this is my trick. Uh, oh, I don't even need to go over to Twitter. I can just do this on TweetDeck. Um, is I hit the search, and then I hit at Leaflower, which is my Twitter handle, and then I hit your Twitter handle. Uh, oh, yes. We were talking with Jennifer Mace. Yep. Who was talking about... Okay, this is a really long thread. Uh, was talking about <laughs> plotting, basically. And what kicked this off was we were talking about plotting and the, the how do you figure out what happens next, and... I said, I'm not entirely convinced that truly outlandish next steps like sudden dinosaur are unhelpful, even if they're not useful to the finished product. Because why aren't they useful? What would be more useful? And then maybe back up from there. Like, I will grant that this is not the most efficient path to what happens next, but I'm just saying I don't think it's entirely without utility, specifically in cases where the writer is having difficulty articulating what they need the next scene to do. That's right. And then I talked about test-driven development. I said, would a test-driven development approach work for these situations? Were a world of possibilities for what could happen next? There's a world of possibilities for what could happen next, but what does the next scene need to accomplish in terms of moving various arcs forward? Yes. Thank you. I, I was like, I knew that it was something brilliant and good and like a thing that ticked specific boxes in my brain and I could not remember what it was. 
Um, so the idea of just like what I want to say is giving yourself permission. Like this show is all about kindness. Mm-hmm. This show is all about giving yourself permission to do the thing and for that to be, you know, it can be not perfect and that's okay. Yeah. Like we've been talking about Quakerism. There's a, a long-standing member of my meeting, um, sort of a elder who's been around since I was a kid who who has a, a saying which is that anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Ooh, I really like that. Because, of course, people will say, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And the opposite is also true, that if you're afraid to do something because you don't think that you're going to be any good at it, the worst that you can do is fail. So just, you know, if it's worth doing, it's worth trying to do. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and giving yourself permission to try those things and in the context of doing test-driven development Mm -hmm. of plotting, of... You don't have to, especially for a first draft, you don't have to be perfect. Yeah, yeah. First drafts rarely are perfect. First drafts are usually flaming dumpsters full of word vomit, and then you find the plot in them somewhere. Yeah, true, true. Um, for for your, your listeners who are not engineers, test-driven development is basically the computer programming equivalent to writing an outline. What it is is that computer software a, a lot of times has what's called automated testing, which is basically you run, a, you run code against your code. Um, and the test suite, you have to write tests and say, I'm expecting my code to do this, so tell me if it's actually doing that. Um, and so test-driven development is where you write the tests before you actually write the code that you're going to test. So you're saying, when I'm done writing this code, I expect it to do the following things. Tell me if it's done those things. So you write those tests... And then you run the tests to make sure that they fail, because if they pass before you've written the code, then you wrote your tests wrong, and they're not testing for the right thing. Then you write the code that you're trying to test, then you run the test suite again, and this time the test should pass, because you you have confirmed that it is doing what you think it was doing. So it's kind of like having an outline, but instead of an outline of step by step, you're going to do this and then this and then this, it's an, it's an outline that is, this is the outcome I expect from what I am doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a writing from perspective, a writing, yeah. Yeah. From a writing perspective, it is, you know, what emotional beats am I hoping to hit? What, uh, yes. like, what am I, how am I going to get my characters from point A to point B yeah. in a, a way that is effective and believable and drives the story rather than just... And then we drove there because reasons. Right, right. So it's not the, well, they need to get across the canyon. So, of course, the first thing they're going to do is this and then this and then this. Um, I'm using that episode of uh, The Last Airbender where they're crossing the canyon where it's like, okay, what we need to know by the time they've crossed the canyon is for Sokka and, oh gosh, now I'm forgetting her name. Katara. Yeah, for Sokka and Katara to realize that the real mess slash organization is the friends they made along the way. Um, so yes. like, how are we going to get them across the Canyon in a way that gets them to realize that, that the argument that they're having um, is pointless and they need to accept each other's differences. So that, that is this, that is, it's like, okay, by the time they cross the Canyon, their relationship needs to be here. So what can occur during the Canyon crossing that gets them to that relationship? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I also like to think of scenes, since we're talking about programming and writing, I like to think of scenes in terms of them being um, functions. Um, you're mm. passing characters through functions, and you know functions in programming change their input. You give them an input, and they give you a different output. For instance, if you have an addition function and you feed it 2 plus 2, it will give you back 4. It is transforming your input into something else. Um, Unless it's the 1984 function, in which case it's going to give you back 5. Indeed. Well, yes. But, you know, it's it's the idea that, that you know, your scenes exist to change your characters in some way. Um, mm-hmm. So looking at story writing from that perspective. And I think that's the mess that I got into with this story is that I had a problem, but I didn't have a solution, partially because I didn't have enough distance from the problem that I was discussing. And so I didn't have a way out of it. I just had, I'm frustrated by this, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm frustrated by this is not a novel. You know, what is a novel right. is I'm frustrated about this and therefore blah, 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 right? That is that is the beginning of a story, but not a story. Um, right. So I didn't... I will take Go a ahead. pot shot at uh, literary authors and say, definitely, I'm frustrated about this where this is, I'm a middle-aged man who does not have any sex appeal, is a novel. I would argue... For a given value of novel. I would argue that it is not, but, you know... <laughs> This is one of those things where good writing trumps all. If you can make it work, then make it work. Um, I will. This this gentleman has since passed away, so I can make fun of him um, <laughs> without having to worry about getting sued. Uh, I'm not going to name him because he's still got living family, and that would be mean. But anyway, a creative writing professor that I had, uh, not at Earlham College, but before that, I was at the local community college, and uh, I took a creative writing workshop class, and the professor uh, was working. On a story. Now, mind you, this is a professor at a community college. He was working on a novel about a professor at an Ivy League school having an affair with his student. And I was just sitting there going, this is awkward. Who wants to tell him? Because I don't. And yeah. uh, I tried to, in the context of a different story in the, that somebody was workshopping, I tried to gently introduce the concept of Mary Sueism, which at the time, like, I, Mary Sueism is a complicated thing where a lot of times the term gets used to mean you wrote a female character who was cool. How dare you? Um, yep. But the idea of putting in a self-insertion character that is gratifying to the writer but not to readers is what I was trying to get at. And I was trying to explain that to somebody else in the workshop. And he got, the professor, got real fucking defensive about how writing an idealized version of yourself into your stories is a perfectly legitimate literary technique. And I was like, yeah, tell us more about that, mister. I wish I was an Ivy League professor that could bang my students. I didn't say that out loud, however, because I wanted a grade in his class. Yes. Yeah. Oh, but way to tell on yourself. Right? It was embarrassing. Oof. Like, I was 17 years old at that point. I, my understanding of feminism was minimal, but I was still sitting there like, my guy. My guy, no. My guy, many years of fan fiction have prepared me to react to what you're writing by just not saying a goddamn word. Yep. Yep. Fan fiction. It's good. You should read some. Yes, fan fiction is very good. Um, I don't write a whole bunch of it anymore, not because I've outgrown it. A lot of people, you know, have this, oh, you know, it's a really good way to learn how to write. It is, but that's like saying that, you know, doing any craft is a good way to learn how to do the craft. Um, yeah. It's like, turns out that playing piano is a really good way to learn how to play piano, and writing is a really good way to learn how to write. Um 
And uh, the the I don't yeah I don't do a whole lot of writing anymore fan fiction writing anymore. But I did when I was little. Uh, wrote a ton of fan fiction. I say little. I mean high school. Um, just <laughs> lots, little. lots and lots of Star Wars fan fiction. Just lots of Star Wars fan fiction. Um, and of course, you know, I was like all over the the like fan fiction live journal. Um, and like so, the concepts of like here's why certain oh, things do and don't work days. were very present in my head. Um, and uh, yeah, then I walked into this creative writing class where I had a middle-aged professor that was writing a self-insertion, and then I had a classmate who was writing a version of herself uh, who, yeah, just, I don't want to get into the details because, again, this is a living human being, but <laughs> the love interest of this person who was in this class was based on the professor, and I honestly to this day do not know if she had a crush on the professor, for professor or was just trolling him. It would not have been an age-inappropriate situation, like she was not 17. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if she was just angling for that A by writing a story in which yeah. the roman- the lead's romantic interest looked like and had the same first name as our professor or what. Um, but that was a situation. That was a class Scream emoji. I dealt with at the age of 17. And um, sarcasm. Sarcasm got me through it. Um, that was the yes. same. The reason that I'm so down on this professor and I'm not just like, do you, man, um, is that he told me that um, and I, I tell people this story and they think that I'm a bragging and b being an asshole. Neither of those is true. <laughs> he legitimately told me that I was too good of a writer to be writing fantasy and science fiction um, and that I needed to grow up and start learning to write real stories. And at the time I was like, OK, and I'm thinking in my head okay, dude that's writing a self-insertion fan fiction about banging your students. But, like, I was just like, whatever. Like, it didn't offend me. I just had no respect for him because of the writing that he was doing. And I was like, yeah, how's that literary career you got going where you're writing yourself in as a professor with successful literary publications? How many books have you sold? Oh, right, zero. (laughs) I've had many other writing professors since then who were not weirdos. Um, (laughs) But that guy was a weirdo. I I think most writing professors, well... Along those specific axes, most writing professors are not weirdos. Well, I will not try to make a stand that writing professors are not weirdos. I'm saying weirdo because for some reason I don't want to say creep, but that guy never creeped on me. Um, So it's not like he sexually harassed me or something, but like I'm looking at him and the what he was writing in class, and I was like, if he was still alive, I would not be shocked at all to see some Me Too's coming his way, because like who thinks that's appropriate? Yeah. But he did, yeah. so, yeah. The audacity of caucasity? Yeah, I don't know. Just giant shruggy emoji. Um, yeah. Anyway, I forget what we were talking about when we started on that, that tangent about that guy. Writing. We're talking about writing. We're talking about writing. <laughs> uh, so at this point, uh, to talk specifically about science fiction, I wondered if we could step into this uh, mysterious blue box over here that just appeared all of a sudden you know travel through time a bit maybe tell young Annalie some things you wish you'd known then that you know now oh let's see honestly honest to god the biggest thing that i would tell college age Annalie was yes you do have add and that's okay and mm-hmm. get some medication because it will improve the entire the quality of your entire life um i spent the entirety of my 20s struggling to hold i don't i don't think that 
I don't know that other people perceived that I was struggling to hold down jobs, but I constantly felt that I was always on the verge of getting fired, struggling to keep my shit together. Um, and, you know, sometimes it was better and sometimes it was worse, but it was a decade of anxiety. And certainly when it came to my writing, one of the things that I have learned to do with ADD is uh, control hyperfocus to where I can get into a zone where I can write. Like, I don't do NaNoWriMo anymore because November just has, for reasons, just is never a good month for me to try it. And I've realized that that the actual act of getting a novel's worth of word on words onto the page is not the part where I struggle. Um, that mm-hmm. is actually fairly easy for me um, because I can I can manipulate I can basically use ADD hyperfocus to do that. The problem is when I get to that end of a novel length of words, am I going to have a story? And the answer is not unless I've outlined it to shit and back first. Um, Because Mm -hmm. otherwise my characters are just going to wander all over the place doing whatever the fuck. I cannot both write prose and uh, manage the connections of like, this is what's, this is, these are the various plot threads and how they connect and how they interact and the, the actions that they need to take. Um, basically I need to write my tests first. I need to know what each scene is trying to do before I can sit down and write a scene that's actually going to do that. Otherwise my characters are going to like walk all over the place and they're going to tell some really funny jokes. Um, but they're Mm -hmm. not actually going to tell a story. So, so for me, outlining is, is the really, really difficult part. Um, but anyway, back to what I would tell young Annalie, um, I would tell her to get some fucking treatment for ADD. I would, oh, let's see. Uh, I think honestly that that was the biggest thing that that held yeah. me back as a young writer. I was I have always been fairly good about feedback. I've never been um, I don't I don't take like I'm very analytical about how I approach my writing. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you just are like this sucks, I'm going to be like, "Okay, I'm not listening to you." Um, but if you're like actually giving some kind of constructive feedback, I'm unlikely to take it personally, unless the constructive feedback is you can't use singular they, and then I'm going to like, first of all, I do take that personally, and second of all, fuck you! Um, yeah. But, you know, if, as long as, if you're not being an asshole, basically, I'm not somebody that, that ever takes that personally, and so I can, I have seen the sort of steadily improvement, like, steady improvement in my writing over time as I just sort of learned to get better at it. And I don't think there's any advice I could give my younger self that would have short-circuited that process other than get some goddamn treatment for ADD. Jesus Christ. Um, Yeah. And also, well, I would say take Mary Robinette's class sooner, but I actually took it pretty early in the... I don't... I wasn't sort of... Certainly wasn't one of the inaugural students, but um, I took it pretty early in my, like, hey, maybe I should learn to write short fiction. Um, and then I did, and then I learned to write short fiction. Um, yeah, I guess the thing, the advice that I would give my younger self that I still need is about how long I wait to send things out and how, like, I do not, I don't, I don't have, I have four stories in print right now. Those are the four short stories that I have finished and tried to sell. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a lot of short fiction that I have tried and and not sold and i tell people that and again it sounds like i'm bragging especially if i leave the numbers off and i'm just like oh it's only four stories if i'm just like i've sold everything that i've tried to sell it's like oh well isn't it nice to be you but would you rather be the person who has written 
30 stories and has 10 of them in print? Or would you rather be the person who's written four stories and has four of them in print? Um, you know, if you've written four stories in a year and has four of them in print, you're doing great. But for a while yeah. there, I was selling one story a year and then I stopped writing for a year because of stuff. Um, and so I just haven't had anything out since 2018. Which I do not regret that the stuff that I had going on was quite important, but you know I I wait and so I I say that and and some people are like oh wow like you you know you've got a really high batting average but I'm like no I'm not swinging nearly as much as I should mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm th- there's a lot of balls that I should be swinging at and and risking missing that I'm just not taking that swing right yeah I think I think all of that is really important. And, like, widely applicable, you know, not just get treatment for ADD, because not everybody has that, but, like, figure out, if your brain feels like it's doing the wrong thing, and you feel bad in your brain, talk to somebody about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, which, you know, there's, especially in the, like, shithole that is the U.S. health system, that's... That's advice that I recognize comes with a certain degree of privilege, but especially for younger people, if you are under 26 and still have access to decent health insurance, you know, for God's sakes, take advantage of it. Uh, Do everything that you can with it. Because, you know, I I was diagnosed in college because, and this is another subject, I have been, I was diagnosed with dyslexia in like third grade. And so I needed accommodations for that. And when I got to college, they were like, well, we need you to get retested because you haven't been tested in years. And I was like, are you the under the impression that dyslexia goes away? Mm-hmm. Do you think it can be cured? Because yeah. it cannot. But they made me, and I was real pissed about it, and I resented the hell out of it. They made me get retested, and it that was not covered by insurance, and so we had to pay for it out of pocket, and it was extremely expensive. And when I yeah. got retested, they were like, yeah, you're dyslexic. P.S., you're also ADD. And I was like, no, I'm not. Bullshit. <laughs> I'm not ADD. I have my shit together. I'm on the fucking Dean's list. I don't have ADD. And so I like completely rejected that diagnosis. And then three or four years later, after I graduated from college, I was reading an article about how a lot of women don't get diagnosed with ADD until later in life. And it's not because uh, a lot of people will tell you it's just because it manifests differently in women. That's not true Mm -hmm. at all. The difference is how how girls and boys are socialized. Um, I'm a non-binary yeah. person. I was raised uh, female. I was perceived to be a girl. And there's behaviors that when a boy is doing them in a third grade classroom, the teacher talks to their parents and says, I think Timmy needs some help. You should get him medical attention. And if a girl is doing mm-hmm. those same behaviors in a third grade classroom, the response is, you need to get this child under control. It isn't she needs yeah. help. It's there's something freakishly wrong with her. Teachers put up with that shit from girls for about five seconds. So girls learn to mask their symptoms at a fairly young age. And people perceived to be girls learn to mask their symptoms. And so we get, quote unquote, inattentive type, which just means we've learned to daydream instead of bouncing off the walls. Because when we bounce off the walls, we get in significantly more trouble. But reading about that in my mid-20s, I was like, oh, shit, I am ADD. Um, and reading about the experiences of other people perceived to be women who had been diagnosed later mm-hmm. in life. I was like, fuck my life. I am ADD. But then at that point I was like, well, I've gotten this far without meds. So clearly I'm fine and I don't really need meds. And I got some ADD coaching and my coach was like, you should get meds. Um, and I was like, yeah, maybe I'll look into that. But you know, scheduling that appointment takes executive function and executive function is hard. Um, so I didn't get meds until last year. Um, and then I started taking them and I was like, I don't know how, 
anybody in my life dealt with me before I was medicated. And I don't know how I dealt with myself before I was medicated. Um, Obviously, I have many ADD friends who may or may not be medicated. I love them all. I'm not saying that they should get on meds if they don't want them. Do you? But I was just like, wow, this has drastically improved my quality of life um, and made it much easier to live inside my own brain. Yeah. We are also not sponsored by the makers of Adderall. Yes, no. We're generally anti-Big Pharma. I think I can speak for both of us in that uh, particular regard. So yeah, get get the help you can. Yes, yes. But also, uh, and sometimes the risk of being told no feels really heavy. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think this is something that a lot of kids, uh, or a lot of people that that were raised as quote unquote gifted, um, can relate to. Um, I've done some research since on sort of giftedness and talked to educators, and they're like, first of all, giftedness in young children um, has no no correlation, uh, basically no correlation with giftedness later in life. If you were if you were branded gifted before the fourth grade, there's a lot of school districts that have learned not to do that um, because mm-hmm. you can be precocious in kindergarten and be utterly on grade level by fourth grade. There is no correlation um, between early. Uh, early precociousness and later IQ, test scores, achievement, anything. Um, But a lot of us grew up precocious and we learned that we are smart and that that is our greatest asset that we give the world. And especially those that were of us that were bullied and we're told they're just jealous of you because you're smart. You learn to Mm -hmm. see smartness, not just as a virtue, but as a shield you carry into the world. And when you have that shield and that shield is protecting a whole bunch of damage underneath um, and a whole bunch of uh, sense that you might not actually have the value that you think you have, which is all in front of you in this shield is that you are smart. The risk of being told that you are not smart or that you didn't succeed at something on the first try feels very great. Um, And uh, learning to fail um, and learning to be like, this is okay. Science is about failure you know, I'm learning to write. I tried this. Did it work? No. Okay, trying the next thing. That's how you learn. That can be really difficult for people who sort of rest a lot of, of their uh, sort of emotional self-worth on the idea that they are, are particularly talented, particularly smart. Um, mm-hmm. And the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that being smart has nothing to do with being worthy and it has nothing to do with being worthy of kindness. You know, I am a worthy and decent person because I am a person and being Mm -hmm. smart has nothing to fucking do with that. And people weren't mean to me because I was smart. They were mean to me because I was a fucking socially awkward kid that did not understand social cues and other children did not know how to enforce their boundaries kindly. So they were just cruel instead, which a lot of those kids have probably grown the fuck out of that. Right. Um, But the older I've gotten and the more I've, I've realized that like, that inability to just sort of try and fail uh, has really held me back. And I think it can hold a lot of younger writers back where they, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about knowing when to give up on something. Um, the the failure mode that a lot of people falling fall into is giving up too soon of, you know, mm-hmm. they, and this is certainly a failure mode that I fall into of like, if I send a story out and get three rejections, I'm like, Oh, there's something horribly wrong with this story. Um, it's probably never going to sell. Um, right. And, uh, you know, then I, that's, I think that's what happened with, no, that one only got two. Yeah. There was another story that I had out that got four rejections. Um, and at that point I was ready to trunk it. And then somebody, somebody asked me to submit it to, 
um, somebody sent me a competition and was like, you should submit it to this competition. And it was the first Futurescapes, uh, Futurescapes writing oh, yeah. contest. Um, and so I submitted it and I got the first prize, which was a $2,000 prize for a 7,400 word story, um, which is the most I have ever been paid for a work of fiction. Um, and that was a really great experience. Um, but that was a story that had been rejected a grand total of four times. And that was to me, the story is inherently broken and I should trunk it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've sold stories after, I think, 18 rejections was the the my high score yeah. there. And I sold that story after taking Mary Robinette's class mm-hmm. and finally grokking what mice slash mace means for writing mm-hmm. and rearranging two plot tags at the beginning of the story and cutting off 10 sentences. And then I sold it. Yeah. Which congratulations on that. Yeah. Um, and there's been a couple of stories where, you know, it got a couple of rejections and then I, I got some feedback on it and then changed it to accommodate that feedback and then sold it to the very next market. Um, which is always a gift. Um, of course, yeah. editors do not owe us feedback. And for the most part, you're not going to get feedback from editors. Um, nope. and, in the times that I've gotten feedback from editors, I felt like it's more because I have some kind of personal rapport with that editor than than for any other reason. Like, there's no reason that they would have gone out of their way to be like, this is what you're going to do to fix that, what you should do to fix that story. Because, like, if they were going to do that and they were confident enough that it, like, if an editor is giving you feedback where they're confident enough that that feedback is actually going to fix the story, usually what they'll say is revise and resubmit. Yeah. They won't say, sorry, no. But here's what I think. Sorry, no, and here's what I think probably means you're close and the next story might be there, but this one I don't think is. Um, or at least yeah. isn't there for me, which is not the same as isn't there at all. Um, right. But, you know, so so getting that feedback, having a good uh, good relationships with, with other, with peer writers and with mentors, um, that to me is the biggest benefit of crit groups, um, like doing writing classes of any kind, whether we're talking about a workshop or like a workshop at school or anything is, is developing pure relationships with other writers, um, who you can talk to about writing and who you can continue to give feedback to each other about your work. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's there, those people are your, your crew and your those are the people that you're gonna, sort of come up with as like you pursue your writing careers and having those relationships is really, really valuable. I'm a weird fucking individual and an introvert. And so it's weird to me, like my younger self would not like that advice at all. My younger self would be like, what do you mean? I have to make relationships with other people. Networking is creepy, fake bullshit. My younger self wouldn't like that advice at all. Cause my younger self would be like, Oh, that's networking and networking is like creepy, fake bullshit. Um, networking is not about creepy, fake bullshit. It's not about being nice to people you don't like. Um, it is about forming relationships with other people that are on the same road as you are. Mm-hmm. I'm about to make an analogy to hiking the Appalachian trail, um, which is that through hikers on the Appalachian trail, if you're hiking South to North or North to South, there's going to be other people hiking that you're going to be near and around and mm-hmm. some you're know you're going to hike at different speeds and your speed is not consistent so you might run into the same person several times along the trail or they might pass you once and keep going and you never see them again forming relationships with other people that you're going to interact with whether it's just they pass you once and you never see them again that's that person that like their early stories took the fuck off and they're on the nebula's ballot and they're rock stars now um but you were briefly on that journey together and then there's going to be other people that you're going to pass who you know are mm-hmm. are going to 
decide to like put writing on pause, have life stuff going on. And then maybe years later, there's there, you're seeing them at a con and they're back on it, you know, and then there's people that you're going to be running into constantly in terms of like, you're just on the same path. You're talking to each other. You're sharing TOCs, tables of contents with this person more than once, mm-hmm. you know, and those are people that it's good to form relationships with because you can help each other out. Not in terms of like doing each other like business favors. It's not like, Oh, I should be nice right. to this person. Cause they might buy my work. It's like, I should form genuine human relationships with other people that are learning the same things that I'm learning and are on the same road as me because they can tell me things like, oh, hey, I'm hiking ahead of you and I'm going to message back that this part of the road is or this part of the trail is flooded out. And you should go around it or just, you know, hey, looks like you should probably drink some of your water. Have you drunk water lately? Um, yeah. <laughs> P.S. It me. Your small is a very good short story. Um, yes. About drinking water and how it's important. And also a good bot. Also a good bot that will encourage you to drink water because it's important. I just drank some water and I'm going to drink some more. Drink some water. Did it. Cool. Excellent. Well, Annalie, thank you so much for everything on this show and for your continual smart and snarky and gleeful tweets. Uh, I have been instructed to... Let me scroll down to that. I have been instructed to instruct you dear listeners to follow Annalie on twitter <laughs> if you like star wars shit posting and empathy um all of those things uh this the shit posting is mostly about star wars um yes right uh, there weren't commas so i just sort of yes inserted them how i would well yes also you should follow me on twitter if you like star wars shit posting and empathy <laughs> <laughs> um now i feel like i should go shit post about star wars because i haven't done that in a while um Sounds good. Cool. Uh, your Twitter is at Lee Flower, L-E-E-F-L-O-W-E-R. Uh, link will also be in the show notes. And you are also, you didn't instruct me to mention this, but I will anyway, uh, the editor of The Bias, which is a geek feminist blog and is very good. Thank you. Yes, it is a blog. We are not open to submissions right now. We've got, basically, we believe that everybody deserves to get paid for doing feminist activist writing in geek spaces because it's exhausting. And that's work that people yes. could be spending on their own creative endeavors instead of unconvincing other people to treat us like human beings. Um, so we open to submissions when we can afford to pay people um, and not, oh, the check is in the mail, but literally I'm going to cut the check that day and put it in the mail as soon as we have that signed contract. Um, so we're working on a couple things about our, our our funding model, um, but we announce it on Twitter when we are open to submissions, and yes. there will be announcements about that. Fantastic. Uh, link to the bias and your Twitter for the bias blog will also be in the show notes. Wonderful. Annalie, again, thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having uh, me and for your adorable torty cat. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> yes. She's a good, good cat. Good cat. And let me find my outro script, because I also am... A disaster bisexual and can't keep Yay, these things disaster bys. Okay. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast and I tweet at hbbisniex. If you like the show, Consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Yay! Yay!